1: Matthew chapter 4 will continue in this passage, the great triple temptation of the Lord and his triumph. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, Lord, as your children, and we need your instruction this morning. So do teach us, pour out your spirit to us, make known your words to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward a hundred. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God... Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me." Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. This is such an important section, and you know, it's always good to give a title to sections, and so if we were to choose a title for this section, maybe you could take it from verse 1 where it says, Jesus tempted of the devil. I mean, what an incredible title that is when you think about it, because as we've been into this subject here, as we've been into this section in the Scriptures, we have to always keep in mind, who was this who is being tempted here? And so, in that regard, there's one passage of Scripture that we need to keep always before us in mind as we read this. It's really John 1. In John 1, 1, where it says, it speaks about the Lord as, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So who is this? This is the temptation of the eternal one. This is the temptation of Jesus as God. This is the temptation of the creator. This is the temptation of the giver of life. This is the temptation of the person who is the embodiment of light itself. And this is the scripture that's got to be kept in our minds as we're reading this, that this is Jesus as God. But that raises an important question, which comes from James one thirteen, because James one thirteen explains to us that God cannot be tempted with evil. So how can this be possible? How can this temptation of Jesus, who is God, and who cannot be tempted, how is that possible? And the reason is... Another scripture, a little bit farther down in John 1, where it says, John 1, 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So this is the temptation of God who became a man, and he dwelt among us in the sense that he suffered everything that you and I suffered. He was tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted or are tempted. He was touched with the same feeling of weakness that you and I feel in our weaknesses. This is Jesus who is God, who became a man. And the title that we love to use, that he loved to use to express what he did is he loved to call himself the son of man. This is Jesus, the son of man, or man, the son. This is Jesus, the son of God, or God, the son. This is Jesus, the son of man, or man, the son. And so what we're witnessing in this chapter here is the reason why he became a man. Because He came to rescue us from our sins, and he did that as a man. He rescued us from our sins. He's going to lead us out of condemnation. He's leading us out of judgment. And why or how? By becoming a man. To lead us as a man out of condemnation. To lead us as a man out of judgment for our sins. So this is a grand relevance to us when we look at this threefold temptation of the Lord because as we look at these three temptations, we got to always remember, if, now it didn't happen, but if the Lord had failed in any one of these temptations, he would have become disqualified to rescue us as a man from our sins. If the Lord would have caved to the 40-day hunger and turned just one stone into bread, you and I would be hopelessly lost in hell forever. If the Lord would have just taken that little step, just to jump off of the pinnacle there, you and I would have no savior for our sins. If the Lord had just stumbled and just worshiped Satan to receive all the kingdoms of the worlds at that time, you and I would have only a future of darkness and pain and suffering to look forward to in hell forever. That's why with each of these temptations as the Lord triumphed and resisted, we cheer. Every time we see him triumph in one of these, we cheer and we say, we have a lamb. We have a lamb without blemish. We have the lamb of God. We have the lamb of God who takes away our sin. We have the lamb of God who takes the sin of the world because he triumphed over each one of these three temptations. So what we're looking at here is the temptation and the victory of the Messiah. And this passage shows us openly about also who the devil is. The devil has come right out here. We don't see him, but here he is. He's out here, and we see him as his old activities. We see him all throughout Scripture. We see him, for example, in Zechariah 3.1. There the word is resist. The devil resisted Joshua. We see him with Paul in Second Corinthians twelve seven, and there the word is buffet. He buffets Paul. We see him in Second Corinthians four four with the lost, and there the word is blind. He blinds the minds of them which believe not. We see him in Second Timothy two twenty-six, and there the word is the word is snares. He sets snares for the lost. In Matthew 13, 19, when it comes to the parable of the seed and the sower, we see him there as snatch. The devil snatches or catches away the word of God. Acts 5, 3, with Ananias and Sapphira, we see the devil as the one who fills the heart, fills the hearts with evil. And as we've seen in 1 Peter 5, 8, 1 Peter 5, 8, the word is walk, he walks about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, so we always also, and we read this part, this section here. We have to remember this is the start of the ministry of the Lord. This is the start of it, and significant in his start. As we look at this in verse one, when it says, "Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness." This statement really it draws out a question. And we know that the primary work of the Messiah was to save people, it was to heal the lepers, it was to give sight to the blind, it was to free the captive from Isaiah 61. one It was to do all of these things with people. So if the primary work of the Messiah was to benefit people, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit lead the Messiah first to go where the people are? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit start by leading the Messiah to the people. Why would he start his ministry? Why would the Holy Spirit start the ministry of the Messiah by leading him away from the people into the wilderness alone? And why would the Holy Spirit not strengthen the Messiah for this great work in front of him of healing the people, of saving the people? Why would the Holy Spirit first lead the Messiah to weaken him through a fast? And the obvious answer to this question is what we've been studying here in verse one, which is, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So he's gonna deliver captive people. And in order to do that, he has to conquer their captor, who is the devil. And this is what we have in this section. It's sort of like a hand-to-hand combat with the captor, with the devil, in these three temptations. And that shows us that when we want to go and see people saved from their sins, that we have a bigger struggle on our hands than just flesh and blood, just the people we're dealing with. As it says in Ephesians 6.12, Ephesians 6.12, it explains to us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickednesses in high places. But from this history, we can see here that the Lord is really wrestling against the power of darkness himself. And if we're to fulfill our role as deliverers from darkness, then we've got to look at this chapter, this chapter four, as laying out for us who we are primarily wrestling against. But there's another lesson for us when we see how the Holy Spirit first led the Lord First, away from the people into the wilderness for these 40 days of fasting to be alone with God. I mean, first of all, fasting is a deep expression. It's like a longing, I want to have company with God. I want to be with God. And so the way of expressing that desire to be alone with God is fasting. Fasting is really symbolic of the suffering of the flesh or the withering away of the flesh so that a person can be not distracted from hearing God. This is what fasting's all about. And there was so much work for the Messiah to do. So many people that needed to be healed. So many people that needed to be saved. As he said, so many villages that he had to visit. He had an itinerary that was full, and it was pressing. And so the Holy Spirit now leads him to be alone, for 40 days. And you know, it shows that we tend to focus on what we have to do in our lives, of what we need to accomplish, of the work that we need to jump into. But the Holy Spirit led the Lord first away from the people into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us first into a communion with God. We wake up in the morning, and immediately we think of the checklist of all that we got to get done today, and we want to start checking off some of those things on the list. But the Holy Spirit led the Lord Jesus first away from the people into the wilderness, and the Holy Spirit wants to lead us each day into our wilderness away from our checklist to be alone with God in our morning devotions. So with all the work that the Lord Jesus had to get done And he only had three short years to get it all done. The fact that the Holy Spirit first leads the Lord away from his work into the wilderness, it shows us that God is more concerned about what we are inwardly than what we do outwardly. I mean, it shows us that we can never be successful in our work for God unless we start our days alone with God in our wilderness. This is God's preparation for the work, Then God is more concerned with what we are than what we do. And in describing this tragedy of uh, mistakenly thinking that God is more concerned with what we do than who we are, the Lord described this tragic group of people in Matthew 7.21. In Matthew 7.21, the Lord said, So this group of people came to the Lord with what they did, and the Lord cast them away. He cast them away not because of what they did, but because of who they did not know. They did not know him. The Lord is more concerned with our close relationship with him more than what we do. And that's the lesson that we get when we see the Holy Spirit leading the Lord away from the people was his work into the wilderness to start his ministry for these 40 days to be alone with God. And this is what happened also with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was explaining to the Roman king Agrippa about his life work. He was telling the Roman king of Agrippa, this is my life work that's given to me by God. And he said to him in Acts twenty six fifteen. Acts twenty six fifteen, Paul was explaining to Agrippa his encounter with God. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. Here's his life purpose. To make thee a minister and witness both of those things which thou hast seen and those things which I will appear unto thee. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So God speaks to Paul for the first time. The Lord Jesus speaks to Paul for the first time. And he tells him, Paul, your life work is going to be, you are going to be God's messenger to the Gentiles. You are going to open the eyes of the Gentiles. You're going to turn the Gentiles from darkness to light. You're going to turn the Gentiles from the power of Satan to God. You're going to bring the Gentiles forgiveness of sin. And you can imagine, Paul say, that's a big job. And so Paul would say, okay, that's a lot of work to do in a very short lifetime. I need to get started right away. So what did he do? In Galatians 1.15, he tells us what he did. Galatians 1.15, he said, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen or the Gentiles, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. So Paul immediately goes away to be alone with God for three years before he starts his work. Why? Because God was more concerned with what Paul was inwardly over the work that Paul did outwardly. Now, so far in this passage here, we've studied two temptations. Two temptations, which now brings us to the final one, which starts with the words in Matthew. It starts with the words in verse 8. It says, again, the devil. Again, the devil. It's like, oh, again, the devil. Okay, and again, the devil. So here's two defeats. The devil's hat, you know, it's like a zero for the devil, two for the Lord, you know. And you'd think that maybe he'd finish his temptations. No, it starts off again. you look at that word again, it's kind of what our life is going to be like the rest of our lives, in case we didn't know. It's again temptation, one temptation after the other, again another temptation. The devil is going to dog our tracks all the way into heaven, all the way into the gates of heaven. He's going to be nipping at our heels. So again, a temptation. And this is really the Christian life. The Christian life is really a life of increasing intensity increasing intensity. On one hand, as we go on in our Christian life, the intensity of our love for the Lord Jesus grows. Just like the hymn says, since I started for the kingdom, since my life he controls. Since I gave my heart to Jesus, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. So there's an intensity in love that grows. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, as we go on in our Christian life, the intensity of our temptations of the opposition, that grows also, as another hymn puts it, see the mighty host advancing, Satan leading on, mighty men around us falling, courage almost gone, hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus signals still, wave the answer back to heaven, by thy grace we will. So this word again, in verse eight is very meaningful to us because it shows us that, in case we haven't figured it out yet, that it's going to be one battle after another until we reach heaven's shores. All right, so, so far we've seen how after 40 days of fasting, he's really hungry. The devil tempts him to turn the stones into bread. We've seen how the devil then transported the Lord into Jerusalem, sets him up on this highest point of the temple, and then backs off and says to the Lord, Jump, jump, just jump. Now, let's see what the Lord has here for the last temptation. So in verse 8 Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kings of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Again, just like the second temptation, where the devil transports the Lord into Jerusalem sets him up there on the highest point of the temple. Now again, the devil transports the Lord to an exceeding high mountain. And just as we saw in the second temptation, there's only one reason why the devil was able or could transport the Lord, and that was because this was a limited power that was given to him by God. And that's the only reason why the Lord submitted to the devil's limited power was because God had given him that limited power. So here the devil goes. He's transporting the Lord into an exceeding high mountain to show the Lord all the kingdoms of the world. Now, first of all, we don't know where this mountain was. We don't know if this was Mount Everest or Mount McKinley. or I'm sure it wasn't Cal's mountain, but anyway, we just don't know. Probably not the Mount of Olives. You know, that's not very tall. I mean, it's described as an exceeding high mountain. We're not told what the mountain is or where the mountain is. And you know why? Because it's not important. The only thing that's important is an exceeding high mountain. So he takes them up to the, first he takes them to the highest point of the temple. Now he takes them to the exceeding high mountain. And he takes them up there. And what he did was to show the Lord all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, if you ask me, How the devil was able to show the Lord all the kingdoms of the world? I'll tell you, I don't know, but not important. It's not important because he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and that's what he did in the glory of them. And that's what's important to know here. But one thing is important: is that the devil was able to do that, which again shows the limited power that God gave to the devil. Now, kind of think about what he must have showed him there. He must have, I mean. We travel the world, and we go to what are essentially ruins, and we say, wow. (laughs) They're ruins, you know. He didn't show them ruins. He showed him the glory of the imperial palaces of Rome. He showed him the wonder of the hanging gardens in Babylon. He showed him the beauty of Versailles and and Paris during the kings and grandeur of uh, all those palaces in Egypt and you know, Aztecs and Incas and the Macedonians with Alexander the Great and the Mongolian Empire under Genghis Khan, which was a stretch for China and India and Asia. I mean, he showed them all of this, all these kingdoms, and the glory of them. And it's interesting in verse eight that it says, "The devil show with him all the kings of the world and the glory of them." Now, the devil didn't show the Lord stones turned into bread. And the devil didn't show the Lord the scene of him sailing down through the air at the temple. But here the devil shows the Lord all the kings of the world. And this makes this temptation different from the others. This is a temptation which is centered on the eyes. It's not centered on the flesh as in turning stones to bread, satisfy the hungers of the flesh. It's not centered on pride as... Think of how you would be seen if you were falling down from the temple and landed safely. But this is a temptation which is really focused on what he saw. And he pulled out this temptation because the devil had successfully used this temptation of the eyes, called this lust of the eyes, temptation of the eyes in the original fall. And when you look at the original fall, it's very much focused on the eyes when it says in Genesis 3, 6, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat.